Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling. Uh, you sure it's Brett McGarry? <laughs> you don't look like Tristan Field Jones. Do have we worked yet together in August? Nope. No, 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 that's been since uh, the end of July. Wow. I think just before the boys' birthday weekend, the last time we worked together. So it's great to be back in your company yeah. on the air, at least in this studio. We uh, certainly have seen one another, but uh, great to be back in your company on the air, my friend. Yeah, it's good. Uh, good to see you. You were you spent all day in the sun yesterday, and now you're wearing a hoodie inside. I would have thought that you'd still be baking from. Man, it was hot yesterday, but the heat doesn't really affect me in that fashion. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's I'm good. lucky. I'm lucky that way. Well, and you drank your body weight in water as well. I, I think understand. it was nine uh, bottles of water yesterday in order to stay hydrated, and uh, I essentially abstained from any other sort of fluids into my body so i i didn't indulge i think in one really? beverage of an alcoholic nature but uh, for the most part i stayed away from it because when you're in the heat man it hits you really really hard yeah and you know what they had on the 17th hole they had the bdi food truck oh on nice. the 17th hole and Ed, that is one of the best food trucks in the city and you can have basically whatever you want bob irving had a banana split Okay. Waiting to tee off on the 18th hole, which was about, I think, our 11th hole. We started on the 9th. So it was at our 9th or 10th hole. So not, not a bad little snack yeah. after uh, basically uh, completing half your round. So uh, once again, I want to thank the Blue Bombers for uh, their hospitality yesterday. It was, uh, it was quite an adventure for an old guy like me to be experiencing these new things. It, it was like being a kid, uh, being able to, to golf with uh, one of the uh, Bomber fan favorites, Weston Dressler. And uh, Bob Irving, are you kidding me? The guy's a legend on and off the golf course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some incredible shots yesterday from Bob. Wow, yep. cool. Yep. Well, uh, we have some guests right now that I know that you're super excited to talk about with I your background in home rentals. I certainly am. Their names are Mickey and Sebastian. You may not know who they are, but by the end of our discussion, I suspect you will. And if you turn in, tune into HGTV tonight, you'll get a closer look at this. I'm Mickey. And I'm Sebastian. We're expert contractors, best friends, and we're also family. My brother married his sister. Our job is to get our clients into their dream home in their favorite neighborhood. We take the worst houses. I'm going with ugly. Yeah. And turn them into first rate forever homes. Oh my gosh. In one of the toughest real estate markets in the world. Mickey's the big bold thinker. I had this great idea. Sebastian is a pragmatic detail guy. We're running out of time, but that makes us a great team. Nice. Finding old dinosaur bones here. We take the worst and make it the first. I think Mickey is the Brett, and Sebastian is the Greg in this relationship, uh, the detailed, oriented one. And one of the first rules of investing in real estate, Brett, is to buy the worst house on the block and then try and make it the best host on the block. And so that's why I can't wait to see the show tonight. Mickey and Sebastian join us now live on 680 CJOB. Their new show debuts tonight. Worst to, no, pardon me. It starts, uh, you know, why don't you tell me, Mickey, when does it start? Yeah. We're happy to tell you. Well, September 4th at 10 o'clock on HGTV is when you can find it. I'm sure you want it to premiere tonight, but you're going to have to wait a week. Yeah, just going to reset that PBR. <laughs> okay. September 4th. <laughs> Got it. Thanks, fellas. Yeah. Appreciate right. you taking some time out of your busy schedule to promote this. Uh, have either one of you ever done television before? Or is this a first for you both? 
No, this is this is a first. This is really exciting stuff. I mean, they came across to us, and we were just building and doing our thing, and they were like, are you guys interested in uh, being part of the Chorus HGTV family? And, and we thought it would be a great opportunity to showcase what we love to do in our city and, and get people into their dream homes. So, Mickey, I'll ask you this question. Why or where did the inspiration for this show come from, worst to first? Uh, the inspiration is literally just our life. We were already living this lifestyle to begin with. We we have been doing construction since I can remember. I mean, my dad has a company, and he taught me everything I know since I was a kid. We'd literally go to old sites as a kid and pick up two-by-fours that people didn't want to help build other people's homes to keep it within budget. Um, and that's what the show's all about. It's about getting people in their dream home, in their ideal neighborhood, and so that was where it all came from. Hey, Mickey, I got that that uh, springboards uh, into a question that I struggle with. My grandfather was a master carpenter, and any two by four, any other piece of lumber over <laughs> you know twelve inches long is is worth keeping. How do you handle that on a construction site? Because I've done a lot of work, and I I look at this piece of lumber and I go, I know my grandpa wouldn't want me doing anything other than save this. So how do you deal with that? Because I suspect you live with the same sort of thing. It's exactly the same thing. I mean, every bit counts and you pay by the linear foot, so you don't want to waste anything. I mean, that's the biggest struggle and you got to do your homework. You got to know exactly what you're cutting. It's hard with renos. You don't know if you're going to have nine foot studs, eight foot studs, but uh, that's where we come in and we just, we do our best. But I'm not going to lie. My uh, shop is filled with scrap wood. So, Sebastian, this uh, show, Worst to First, when you guys go into a home, and I, I saw just uh, from the video where you it's, you completely gut it and, and almost start over, what is what would it cost if you were to go into a home and like basically redo everything? What would that cost somebody living in that home? Well, it really all depends on the home, and it depends on what they want done. I mean, uh, a lot of the homes that we're dealing with out in Vancouver, as you know, is the, the prices are pretty high to, to begin with. So it uh, really kind of limits the homeowners with the budget that they have. But, I mean, usually we're working with anywhere from uh, a one to $200,000 budget. And that's, uh, and that's given the homeowners a pretty good, uh, I mean, a, a beautiful home, I should say. Uh, you know, we're giving them pretty much everything on their wish list and, and what they're looking for. And, and we can completely redo a home with that amount of money. But... Uh, you know, it, it is a lot more difficult out in Vancouver with the property values uh, as high as they are. And just to be clear, Seb was talking about their reno budget after we find and purchase in the home. Say that again, after? After after we find and purchase in the home, they usually are left with about a one or $200,000 budget. And who's paying for this? Is it the, the, the homeowners themselves who are paying these budgets? Yes, they are. Okay. So worst to first, it premieres Monday, September 4th. That's 9 p.m. here in Winnipeg on HGTV Canada. The hosts are joining us right now, and I guess they're joining us from Vancouver. I don't know if you guys are on a little bit of a break here or if you're just uh, hunkering down to do a series of interviews today. Mickey and Sebastian are, are with us. And Sebastian, you're a firefighter. Is that what you do full time and you, and you do this home renovation thing on the side? Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I, uh, I mean, I grew up, you know, one of my first jobs was being in construction, and I grew up as a carpenter and a contractor, as many firefighters do. Uh, but, yeah, I was fortunate enough to get on with the Vancouver Fire Department a few years ago. And uh, the nice thing about being a firefighter as well, I mean, you know, while it is helping people and that is a big passion of mine, 
uh, construction and renovations also is as well. So being a firefighter does allow me to do other things and uh, definitely, I mean, it gives me the time to be able to uh, to do this this renovation show with Mickey as well full time. Ever th- I know that the show hasn't even debuted yet, but has there been any thought given to maybe doing a touring show where you take suggestions from uh, other markets? Because I know that this is just set in Vancouver, but any thought already given towards the future? Well, I mean, if we're open to suggestions, so uh, we're yeah. we're still we're just hoping on a season two right now. So we'll we'll take anything we can get. I mean, one thing that makes this show really unique is how well we know Vancouver. We're born and bred in BC, and specifically in Vancouver. So when it comes to the market, when it comes to the city, we're we're passionate about it. We know it, and and that's what really shines through with this season. But we're definitely not opposed to hitting the road. Uh, guys, uh, Mickey, I'll, I'll give this one to you. Uh, you know, we're sitting here in Winnipeg with an average house price uh, around three hundred thousand uh, dollars, and that's a, you know a high number for us. The market's been been nice and warm here, if not hot at times over the last decade. And we see what's going on in Toronto, and of course in Vancouver. And you see that million dollar average price market. Can you give us an idea of like how crappy a million dollar house can be in Vancouver? <laughs> Well, I mean, I've literally had friends from Winnipeg move here and then move back and think how crazy this market is and has been. And uh, it, it is. It, literally, you'll get a teardown for a million, a million, a million two, a teardown, which means you got to rebuild. All you're getting is a lot out here. And that's why this show is so important to us, because we can find the ins and outs of this market. I mean, yes, you're getting the teardown for a million one, but... Maybe we can salvage the foundation, the footprint, the the bones of the house could be good. And that's what that's what we know. That's what we do. And that's just what we want to share with everyone to help keep them in in Vancouver. I mean, born and raised here, we see a lot of our friends getting pushed out at outer cities. And, and we're just trying to keep communities and families together. Can you guys stick around for a few more minutes? we got to check our forecast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ours is a nice one. Ours is sunny and hot. Yeah. Ours is pretty good, too. So hey, just hang tight, guys. It's Mickey and Sebastian. They have a new show debuting on HGTV Canada on Monday. It is going to be at 9 o'clock Winnipeg time. The show is called Worst to First. Vancouver-based series follows these two contractors slash best friends as they transform the worst homes in the best neighborhoods into the envy of the block. And we will resume that conversation after we look at your forecast. Up next. It's a cool day. We're under 30 degrees today, Brett. <laughs> yeah. Unlike yesterday, I think it hit 34 a couple of different places. It's uh, been a wonderful summer so far. It's not over yet, but, you know, as Labor Labor Day approaches, it feels and, sen- you know, you can sense that that fall is definitely on its way. Uh, no leaves on the Link-style golf course yesterday, but there are leaves falling. Uh, certainly from time to time, it, it reminds you that uh, winter is not that far away. But is it safe to say, Greg, that summer has been that you want it that way that summer has been the way that you want i would say that uh i like summer the way it's been 100 <laughs> percent. this is a special surprise for our guests this afternoon in this first half hour of mackling and mcgarry 
Sebastian and Mickey are here with us. They are uh, here to talk about their new television program. It debuts on Monday, September 4th at 9 o'clock on HGTV. It's called Worst to First. And, fellas, I understand that uh, you don't mind karaoke uh, to this uh, Backstreet Boys song from time to time. We're currently singing it right now. You found our only weakness. How do you know we're a Backstreet Boy fan? I, didn't, I try to do my research from, from time to time. I, I, I'm not always competent on that front, but uh, when Backstreet Boys are involved, uh, I don't mind uh, playing a little bit of tunage. Yeah, it's a guilty pleasure. Yeah, you know, we see them as a bunch of boys growing down. They're just they're just looking for love. Yeah. <laughs> Well, hey, good for you guys, because I uh, I am not ashamed to admit as well that I very much like the Backstreet Boys. Their music there we is... Go. Well, uh, maybe we, we could... Could... Yeah, four of us here. We could do a quick little uh, karaoke set. Well, I was thinking bigger. I was thinking the four of us could meet in Las Vegas, because they've got a little bit of a homestand going on down there in Vegas. We could uh, meet up for that show. But we're talking about the new show, Worst to First. It concentrates on the Vancouver real estate market, which means you really got to get value. No question about it. Hey, Sebastian. Uh, what what's the most rewarding part of, of doing one of these projects for your clients? Honestly, the most rewarding part, I mean, as happy as it sounds, it's, it's helping our clients because it is so tough in Vancouver trying to find a home, especially when you have a young family and, you know, it, it's tough enough to find a career that can, that can afford you a home in the city, but to be able to buy a home in Vancouver and renovate it and make it your forever home in your dream neighborhood. I mean, that's really cool. So at the end of it all, once the renovation is done and the family moves back in, it's really cool to see the looks on their faces. Got a listener question here. Should I ask this question here, Greg? It's from Eve at 204-780-6868 who wants to know from you guys, what is worse to work with, plaster or drywall? Oh, when, you, would... when you say work with, you mean like demo or, or install? Oh. That I'm afraid yeah. I don't know. That's the extent of the question That's that was sent. Answer yeah. the question with a question. Well, uh, I mean, I tell you, there's nothing dustier than renoing uh, plaster. You just it's like working in a big ball of dust. Uh, but disposing of drywall isn't an easy thing these days. If it doesn't have the stamp on it, you got to jump through a lot of hoops. Uh, they both have their pros and cons, but I'm I'm gonna pick. I'd rather deal with drywall than plaster. Yeah, I'm gonna agree with Mickey on this one. I'm I'm definitely. A, much bigger drywall fan than I am plaster. Plaster is just a, it's a little more of a thorn in my side than uh, than drywall is. But of course, if you like doing DIY projects, and it's great to have because the lats of wood behind it are usually like top grade fur, and you can build a lot of cool stuff with it. Yeah, you know, for a long time, shit lap and uh, and the lath in behind the plaster was just a, a barrier to a successful renovation, and now those materials are being reused un, in an unprecedented <laughs> fashion, right? Yeah. It's, it's unreal. Yeah. It's, the prices of those materials have skyrocketed. Yeah. So if you're doing a rental, it's a good way to try to recoup some cash. Yeah, and you know, to spend $10 a square foot on reclaimed barn board is uh, <laughs> it's just <laughs> unbelievable to me to imagine that that's a, a thing now. Hey, guys, uh, you know, when you talk about the challenges uh, of putting together a renovation, one of the big ones in my house is being able to see it before it's done, conceptualizing. Yeah. Uh, I have no problem with it. Unfortunately, my wife typically says, well, I guess I'll understand what it looks like when it's finished. How, how do you deal with clients that have a poor uh, ability to, to kind of conceive what things are going to look like before you actually build a wall or, or finish a kitchen? Sounds like most clients. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, you know, it, it can be a challenge for sure. I mean, uh, 
Mickey and I, we definitely try to paint the best picture that we can when we're explaining to clients our, what our plans are. And, you know, through drawings and, and explanation, you can give them a pretty good picture. But at the end of it, you know, sometimes they just don't see it. And you know that it's going to look good, but you can't <laughs> get them on board with it. So uh, it can be a bit of a challenge for sure, but I think we've gotten pretty good at, uh, at getting over that speed bump. Yeah, we try to use different tools. I mean, we, we both have different visions. So that's one thing that's part of the show is we'll pitch our ideas. And, and sometimes when you give two different ideas, it helps them see the overall finished product. Uh, but it really comes down to just trying to read read them individually. Some people like uh, like examples, or some people like more explanations or or a simple drawing. But sometimes you just get people that nod their head and say yes, and yeah, I'm not sure. Kind of like said in high school. And Mickey's really good at selling stuff. I mean, he is a <laughs> natural born salesman. So usually, if uh, there's anything that we need to convince the homeowners on, I'll get yeah. Mickey to talk. See, to he him. says a selling. I don't sell. I just I I tell the truth. I tell it how it is, and I lay it out. So, you uh, you guys said that this is your first foray into television. Yes, correct. What was that? And we only have about 90 seconds left here, but uh, what sort of challenges does it, did that present to you guys? Because you're used to doing your, your job your, mm-hmm. as contractors, but now all of a sudden you've got a television crew and you need to do everything in a way that tells a story. And both industries are super similar. They're both rush, rush, go, go, long 10, 12-hour days, and, and it's, it was really hard to work side by side, but we had an amazing crew, and, and that's what brought it together, and everyone understood everyone's responsibilities, and it had to get done, and it wasn't just about getting the house done it was about also showcasing it in this awesome show worst the first airing september 4th at 10 o'clock gotta tune in gentlemen thanks for this uh i i will be resetting my pvr and making sure that i don't miss this on monday on the holiday and yeah. uh, look forward to a long relationship with you guys on sunday afternoons uh sitting back and watching back-to-back episodes of this at some point i'm sure and uh, we'll see you in vegas for the backstreet boy show <laughs> All right, Mickey and Sebastian, thank you very much. And good luck to the two of you with his brand new show debuting once again Monday, September 4th on HGTV Canada. It'll be at 9 o'clock Winnipeg time. Worst to First is the name of the show. Once again, these two young contractors slash best friends transform the worst homes in the best neighborhoods into the envy of the block. It's based in Vancouver. Coming up to Global News at 1.30 on 680 CJOB. Greg Mackling and Brett McGarry together again on this uh, 29th of August. Sure wish I was going to be able to make it out to Shaw Park tonight. I just don't think it's going to happen, Brett McGarry. Would love to see this tribute to Kenny Shields tonight. Oh, yes. That's right. The uh, the classic rock fest. Yes. Yeah. The Harlequin, a, Orphan, Pumps. It's going to be an emotional night for a lot of people. Yeah, and some great music as well. We will uh, get you some details on that as we make our way throughout the afternoon. And this came across the Newswire, oh, like less than two hours ago, Brett, maybe just over an hour and a half ago, and something that I thought would have been a no-brainer and... Uh, Pardon the pun, you'll realize why that's a pun in just a minute. In terms of limiting concussion, brain injury, neck injury in hockey, this was a proposal that was outlined and suggested uh, that hockey rinks be outfitted with a marker, a warning track, so so to speak, uh, uh, an area of paint around the outside of the hockey surface adjacent to the boards that would give players kind of a heads up, a warning that they were coming 
in close proximity to the boards because, let's face it, neck injuries are predominantly uh, a result of being hit from behind close to the boards. You get your neck jammed into the boards or a high-speed collision that may affect uh, lots of things anywhere on your body, but in particular your upper body. And it shows this research it's amazing what research shows sometimes. Just because you think it's a good idea, sometimes you need the proof. And research is showing that, hold on a minute, this might not be the best thing. Calgary researchers say a warning line intended to prevent injury when hockey players are pushed into the boards actually has the opposite effect. The orange meter-wide line painted on the ice along the base of the boards, known as a look-up line, was created by a U.S. junior hockey player who wanted to remind players to look up before body-checking into the boards. But researchers at the University of Calgary say the players actually looked down at the line, making them more vulnerable to injuries. The study points to medical evidence showing that if hockey players have their head down when they are pushed into the boards, they are at greater risk for head, neck, and spinal injuries. Researchers in the Faculty of Kinesiology spent a year testing the warning line in the Olympic Oval ice hockey rink with the help of coaches and players from the men's varsity hockey team at the university. Lead researcher Joan Vickers says they were surprised by the results given that other sports like football and baseball successfully use warning tracks to remind players to avoid certain areas. The lead researcher on this paper and in this research, Dr. Joan Vickers joins us now, professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology, adjunct professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary, joins us now on very short notice. Uh, Dr. Vickers, thanks for doing that. Were you surprised by these findings? I was actually. Um, it's like you said, uh, warning lines are, are common in uh, many, many sports and they're effective. And so this idea that came out of uh, the northeastern United States just seemed to be a very good idea. Uh, they they approached uh, USA Hockey hoping to get it approved and put into all rinks in the United States, and uh, they approached the medical committee, and, uh, of course, they said, well, we need a bit of evidence to show that it does uh, what you say, which is to improve, A, that it attracts the attention of players more than when they're on a traditional control rink. We set up two rinks uh, a look-up line rink and a control rink. And then we had the same players uh, compete one-on-one -on, -one on both rinks. <clears throat> and um, we found that the, the look-up line does attract a lot more attention. We got a lot more eye movements down on the line in terms of the look-up line rink than we did on the control rink. Remember, these are the same players. They're just moving to different ends of the ice as, as, as we test them. And we also uh, put an electrogoniometer on them so that we could measure their head flexion extension. And we found that across those the critical cut, cut to the boards and try to get around the defensive player, uh, that both the offensive and the defensive player, uh, 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 their head went down instead of going up as, uh, as had been uh, predicted. I'm just wondering, because when you think of a baseball warning track, you know, it's there, it, it, it's a, you can actually feel the difference with the ideas that you're running one direction but looking the other one, so you can't be mm -hmm. looking behind you because you got to follow the ball. And forgive, this is going to be a significance of my ignorance <laughs> towards the game of hockey, but when you're playing hockey, you can, I can't imagine a situation where I wouldn't be able to see the boards. So that's why I can kind of agree that the line would be a distraction, but I don't know. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, we measured their eye movements to everything that hockey players find important. 
And uh, so, for example, there are eye movements on this warning line and also on the puck, on the stick, the opponent, uh, near ice, far ice, the net, the goal, the boards. We found actually there's surprisingly few eye movements on the boards. Uh, really, the puck and the stick are the big uh, things they look at, as well as looking at the opponent, as you can imagine, if you're competing one versus one. Um, and it didn't matter what location. The warning line attracted more eye movements, as did all the others. And the um, not all, all others, what I meant to say is that the angle was downward in terms of the look on line rank rather than on the control rank. Professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Adjunct Professor in Department of Psychology at the University of Cal- Calgary, Joan Vickers, joins us now. She's a lead researcher on a paper that's just been released in the last uh, couple of hours here that shows a warning line intended to prevent injury is more of a distraction than a help in the prevention of those injuries. And hopefully you didn't see any major injuries come out as a result of, of your testing, uh, Joan. But the this whole idea of this being new... How long did you do this for? And and I'm just, you know, brand new processing the information here. Is it possible that the line was distracting because it was something the players had never had to deal with before? Oh, no question about that. And that's why our recommendation is that uh, research follow teams that are competing on both rinks over a whole season and, uh, and see if the injury rates are higher on the lookup line rink than they are on the control rink. One, uh, by the way, I, I was uh, an adjunct in psych a few years back, but I'm strictly 100% in kinesiology, so just to correct that a little bit. Um, the big thing, though, we found another really intriguing result is that we found that on the lookup line rink, the skaters skated further from the boards than they did on the control rink. And we measured that quite uh, precisely, and uh, it seems like the contrast of the the black puck on orange is something they don't care for. They like the black puck on white ice. But whether they get used to that over time or not, I'm not sure. So how, do you know how much further away from the boards? Like this almost uh, shrunk the ice surface artificially to a certain extent. Uh, well done, exactly. Uh, the um, we, uh, we measured it in centimeters and... Uh, the offensive players on the lookup line were 200 centimeters on average from the boards, whereas the on the control rink it was 100, and the defensive player was 300 centimeters versus two. I'm just looking at the diagram 225 on the control rink. That was a significant difference in the two. So I'd really like to see this looked at. It's as simple to, to measure it. You just put fixed cameras at the end of the ice and uh, and record. Uh, we recorded the, the skates of both players as they went over the ring at line. That's a constant line that intersects with the boards. How are you tracking the eye movements? You, you've made a number of references to uh, tracking the eye movements. Did Were they fitted with helmet cams, or were you just sort of just watching them as they played? No, no. They, um, the state of the art in eye tracking research right now puts really powerful eye trackers on sport goggles. And so both players were wearing what's called a mobile eye eye tracker. And uh, you get a gorgeous video. You can see what's in front. And on that video, you actually see a cursor point that shows their location of the gaze within a half a degree of visual angle. That's, that's very precise, actually. 
this is my research. I've been doing this research for an awful long time, and so uh, it's um, it, players hardly know they have them on, actually. I'm just uh, looking at uh, some of the, the research you've done and uh, kind of an overview of some of the things that you do. I'm just reading something here about quiet eye. What What is quiet eye? Uh, quiet eye is the final fixation or the final thing you see before you make a critical movement. And we actually did measure it in this study. Um, there's usually one per trial. And we measured the final fixation just before the con- contact occurred between offense and defense, and we found that um, the head angle during that that fixation was lower on the lookup line rink than it was on the control rink. We then looked at absolutely everything that the players looked at, and the same result came out. It's fascinating stuff, and it also highlights the fact, Joan, that uh, just because you think something makes sense and that it's a good idea in principle, quite often extensive research is required to verify these beliefs. Exactly, and we have the technology to precisely measure what people see now in almost all sports, and so that um, that whole area of research is something I've specialized in for, for a long time. And uh, it, it's really quite exciting what we're finding out. What, what you know, people say, oh, so-and-so sees this, this great athlete sees this or sees that. But that's just uh, conjecture, right? That's not an actual fact. You put these mobile eye trackers on athletes, you know exactly what they're seeing as they perform physically and pretty well any skill you want to look at. This, uh, this technology you're describing sounds pretty neat. As somebody who's been doing this research for a long time, what's it like just for you to suddenly have access to this, these new toys, this new technology to, to make your life easier, I would hope? Oh, it's, uh, you almost feel like Columbus discovering America, or maybe it was the Vikings. I think it was <laughs> the Vikings. <laughs> you're going some, you're, you're seeing things no one's ever seen before. And it's just absolutely captivating, and it's a big, great mystery. It takes a fair bit of work to analyze it. Well, yeah, but, out. Uh, sorry, Joan, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but there are all these uh, sort of sports beliefs, right? Uh, that whole idea of, of intuition, and I'm thinking about quarterbacks in football, who, you know, or it's like he have, has eyes behind the back of his head, or, or uh, baseball hitters, they say that the ball slows down for him, and, and sometimes that's the key in all sport, is that it moves slower in the mind's eye than it does in actuality, and it sounds like you're, you're almost able to track that and to translate that into some sort of data point actually the the quiet eye in a i think it's a, we've done work in we and others in the world now have been uh, been uh, researching about 20 different 28 different uh activities uh, a lot of sports things like surgery and surgical knot tying uh, and police work shooting guns uh and the quiet eye is just exactly the way you've described it. It's actually longer for elite performers when they're successful. Even though their movements are fast and dynamic and just like you'd expect of an elite athlete. Um, So these people have found a way to anticipate what's going to happen, to get their eye on what's important earlier than other folks. And that's what makes it seem so effortless and so smooth when they're having really great games. Fascinating stuff. (laughs) It is fascinating research. Hopefully, we can uh, stay in touch. What's next uh, for for the warning track? Then is this is this something that's uh, going to go away now, or or is more study going to uh, take place? 
Well, I think this business of people skating further from the boards, is it needs to be followed up. Uh, when you put a color there that doesn't, uh, that masks the puck. And um, maybe it doesn't have to be so wide. Um, There's just a whole host of research uh, questions that the ice hockey community needs to deal with and uh, take a look at it in in an objective way. All right, Joan Vickers, Dr. Joan Vickers, Professor of Faculty of Kinesiology. Thank you so much for joining us to discuss this today on 680 CJOB. My, my pleasure. All right. And once again, that is at the University of Calgary, where once again, in case you're just tuning in, researchers say a warning line intended to prevent injury when hockey players are pushed into the boards actually has the opposite effect. So I'd be curious to know what you think at 204-780-6868 if you want to call us or text us. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure what what to make of that. I think on one hand, it does seem counterintuitive that a warning line would actually mm-hmm. create more injuries. But at the same time, because it's it's a visual cue rather than a physical cue, I can also see it being a distraction, especially when you're used to playing a game the same way for so long to suddenly have this meter-wide orange line painted around the rink. Yeah, I was fascinated to learn how that meter-wide line to a certain extent, became an extension of the boards. Yeah. And so the players stayed as far away from that line as they were staying away from the actual board. So maybe there's a benefit there as well if more of the play takes takes place Mm. further away from the boards. But in the National Hockey League example, the rink is already, quote-unquote, shrinking because players are getting bigger, they're getting faster, and that's one of the proposals and, and has been around for some time is that maybe we need to to make the rinks bigger for these bigger, faster, uh, better athletes. Uh, that probably isn't going to help by artificially shrinking the rink. So uh, this is a prime example of one of those things where you go, that's a great idea, they should do that everywhere. Well, you need some research to back it up, and in this case, it hasn't done it to that point. You can let us know at 204-780-6868. My email address is brett at cjob.com. His is gmac at cjob.com. That's g-m-a-c-k at cjob.com. We'll check your forecast up next. I don't know how long they hold that keyboard note. I think it's 28 seconds or something. Wow. But it's spectacular. Love it. A little bit of action from Street Heart. There will be action down at Shaw Park tonight, a tribute to Kenny Shields. And uh, some of the heavy hitters in uh, Canadian rock and roll are going to be there. The, the boys from Loverboy. We've got Orphan in the Pumps, Chris Burke Gaffney et al. We have uh, Harlequin going to be playing down there tonight. And then I suspect there'll be kind of an all-star band at some point on stage with uh, some of the aforementioned and others singing Street Heart songs as a tribute to Kenny Shields. Street Heart was supposed to be the headliner at this show, but of course, Kenny Shields uh, passed away uh, earlier this month, uh, this morning. Shadow Davis spoke with Jeff Neal of Street Heart, and Jeff was not only one of uh, Kenny's bandmates, but he was also one of his closest friends. And uh, Shadow got an opportunity to talk to uh, Shadow uh, this morning, and to talk about how he's dealing with the passing of his good friend. Uh, uh, it's it's really kind of hard to put that into words, and I have been so busy uh, that I it's been a, I haven't had a lot of time to process it. But uh, I I tell you, I have been su- 
I've been supported by all the love and all the good vibes out there for Kenny. I mean, he's had so many friends, and that has really given us something to lean on a lot this time. Yeah, how has the community come together, the music community? I mean, everybody knew and loved Kenny, yeah? Oh, you know, he they, they really did, and it has never been more apparent than it is right now. I mean, you know what the show we're doing tonight. Uh, you know, all of, his, all of his musical colleagues and friends from Loverboy, Mike Reno, Paul Dean, Matthew Fournette, Spider Seneve, they're all showing up to play. Uh, tonight, uh, we got some great singers from uh, from Winnipeg: Lisa Windsor, Paul McNair, uh, George Belanger, the you know Chris Burke Gaffney, Donnie Peronto. It's going to be a great night, and that just sort of underscores how much these people re- respected and loved Kenny. This wasn't originally planned as a tribute because we thought Kenny was still going to be up there and still rocking, didn't we? Well, it, it was part of this was going to be our farewell year uh, uh, tour. Uh, you know, one more, uh, you know, one more year to say thanks to all of our fans and meet all our friends and fans over the year across the country. And uh, the Winnipeg uh, Classic Rock Fest was one of the shows that we had booked very early on in the year. Sam Cates and his group, they said, we want to do this show. And when Kenny got uh, became ill at the beginning of July... Uh, they stepped up and said, "We don't want to cancel the show. We want to do something. We need to. Uh, we need to do this as a tribute to, to help Kenny. You know, with the cost of all everything that he was going through, which was wonderful of them to do that. And then when he passed, of course, then it became. It's you know, it's a tribute to his life and his legacy and his great career. What was he like as a guy? He was a real. He was a regular guy. He's a real everyman, and I think that was really part of Kenny's charm. It's why people really. Uh, identified with him and attached to him. He's a Saskatchewan boy. He's always remained. He's a prairie boy. And he never, he never strayed far from those roots. He's a real genuine person. He, you know, he was a real, you know, he's what you saw is what you got with him. And uh, I think that's really the, one of the, one of the key things why he was so loved and so appreciated and, and was so, had so many friends across the country. How long, how long did you play together in street art? Was that 83? Uh, I joined the band in 1981. Okay. Uh, I, and the first album I did with the band was the uh, self-titled Streetheart album. Right. And uh, I was with the band until we the band broke up in early 1984. Uh, and uh, we had quite a, you know, there was a quite a period of time where we didn't play together. And then we did a, a show in 1996 together at at, uh, at Minnedosa. Which at that time was uh, a, a, a big, great, you know, the beginning, early days of the classic rock uh, phenomena, and right. uh, we had a fantastic show. And by the end of 2000, we did a few one-offs and stuff in between that time. At the end of 2003, Kenny said, "Hey, do you want to come back to the band full time?" And I said, "Yeah, let's do it. Let's let's make let's get a plan and let's go out there and uh, reconnect with our fans and uh, enjoy what we've built. You know, many years before, and 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 I I would say the last 10 years." were certainly a, um, uh, you know, it was, it, it was a bit of a healing thing for Kenny to be able to play and a bit of a renaissance for his career. So that I'm, I'm grateful for him for that. How did it feel? I mean, when you guys first, you know, did this thing in 1996 and you, you went out there and you started doing a little more touring, were you nervous that people weren't going to come out? They might have forgotten you? <laughs> well, I know the first show we did, there were 16,000 people in Minnedosa, yeah. and they were just rabid. Right. <laughs> they were loving it. So we said, okay, this is great. <laughs> but, I mean, you guys went off and, and started touring all across Western Canada, right? And uh, Yes, we did. And and so when you're playing Minnedosa, that was you and a whole bunch of other bands and whatnot, I think. There's, of course, yes. Yeah. But, you know, our uh, we've... Uh, we, 
literally every show we have done, we've done hundreds of shows in the past, uh, uh, you know, 10 years. And yeah. literally every one of them has been a, a sellout. I mean, the, the quality uh, and the loyalty of our fans is, uh, you know, is is top drawer. I mean, they our fans are so loyal and so behind what we do. And we're incredibly grateful for that. And I always say this, but our fans are the greatest asset that we have. And without the fans and and classic rock radio, we would not be here. And uh, and we have every one of you to thank for that. That's Jeff Neal performing tonight in honour of Kenny Shields at Shaw Park. If you can make it out, make it out. 2.05 on this Tuesday afternoon, Mackling and McGarry together again. Thanks for taking some time with us on your busy day, whether you're at work, whether you're out doing sales calls, or maybe it's your day off. We appreciate the feedback. The fact you've taken time to tune in with us and to interact uh, tomorrow. This is based on what we're looking at in the TV here, Brett, right now. The devastation in Houston, Texas. It's absolutely overwhelming to see the amount of water that's fallen and the number of people that are being affected. It is a disaster in every sense of the word. But it got me thinking about overland flooding in Canada, Mm. you know, where we've been so dependent on the federal government for recouping some of our losses and the federal government uh, rebuilding uh, our lives in Canada following major flood events. Well, that's sort of changed. And uh, for the first time now, flood insurance is available in Canada for overland flooding. That changed in the last year or so. Tomorrow, uh, at I think 1.35 tomorrow afternoon, we'll get you some details. It might not be anything that you need to think about right now, uh, but based on what's happening in Texas in the fourth largest city in the United States, we may want to contemplate uh, the terms and, and what we're covered in our homeowner's insurance policy over land flooding, no longer uh, a federal responsibility. Yeah, and I believe that that's a conversation that we're going to have at 105 uh, tomorrow. Oh, 105? Okay, uh, thank uh, you. Because at one at 135, we're going to dr- drastically... Shift gears, change directions, and talk about poutine. Oh, okay, <laughs> very good. There's a, there's an event happening this weekend called Poutine Trail. It's uh, it goes through a number of uh, sort of French communities like Saint Pierre Jolie. So they're gonna come in and tell us a little bit about that, and uh, I'll see if I can get them to bring us some poutine too. So. I like the way you think, buddy. Uh, we'll find out in a little bit what you were up to last night and, and talk a little bit about what I was doing. Um, and I want to talk about what's happened on our highways, in particular at the intersection of uh, Highway 1 and 16. But here's something people might be talking about tonight when they get together. This is just breaking uh, in the sports world over the last uh, 20 minutes or so. The Air Canada Centre is home to the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Toronto Raptors. Correct. Starting next year, in July of 2018, ACC, Air Canada Centre, will no longer be called ACC or Air Canada Centre. Oh. It's going to be known as the Scotiabank Arena. Really? Yes. Okay. Uh, 20-year deal being signed by MLSE. That's the corporation that owns the Raptors, Maple Leafs. They don't own the... Do they own the Blue Jays? I think Rogers and TSN own the Blue Jays, and they own the Argonauts. Anyway, uh, they've uh, scored this landmark deal, so it's going to change the names uh, name of the arena. So how about this? The Calgary Flames, their home arena is Scotiabank Saddledome, and now Toronto Maple Leafs will be in Scotiabank Arena. In, here in Winnipeg, we have Bell MTS Place. In Montreal, it's Bell Centre. And in Edmonton, you have Rogers Place, 
and Rogers Arena, and the Blue Jays play at Rogers Center. So one, two, three, five, six, seven of the top sports venues are controlled by three entities in terms of naming rights. Wow, it's kind of bizarre. That's that's serious. I I I, I miss the days where it was just. The Winnipeg Arena? Yeah. We used to think that was such a dumb name. Now we do anything just to have the Winnipeg Arena. Oh, Winnipeg's so lame. Like uh, Winnipeg Stadium and Winnipeg Arena. How we crave the, the simpler things and don't realize what we have when we have them. Yeah. And I, 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 it's, it's, I, I understand, completely understand the, the reason why. Mm-hmm. The, whoever first came up with this idea, uh, I, I, I'm curious to know the first arena in North America that was named after a company. Like the actual first rights deal? Yeah, that's a great question because Wrigley Field, it was the Wrigley family that Mm -hmm. owned the Cubs. And so Wrigley Field, they just put their name on it. So that wasn't an outside company coming in and putting their stamp on a venue. It was just the Wrigley family who happened to own so many things, had that name on Wrigley Field since like 1908 or 1904 when they when they opened the building. But that's a great question. We should dig that up. One of our listeners probably knows. Yeah, probably. Feel free to text us at 204-780-6868 if you know the answer to that. I'm sure it's an easy Google, but... Uh, you know, we're, we're busy otherwise. Yeah, we like to interact as well. Hey, uh, this came across the line. I got an email uh, about this just before we came on the air. And uh, it, here it is from Headingley RCMP. Respond to intersection collision on August 28th, 2017 at 7.40 p.m. Headingley RCMP responded to a report of a two-vehicle collision at the intersection of the Trans-Canada Highway and Highway 248 at Eli, Manitoba. A semi-truck was stopped at the westbound red light on the Trans-Canada Highway when a pickup truck towing a trailer collided with the back end of the semi's trailer. The two occupants of the pickup truck, a 16-year-old male passenger and the 41-year-old male driver from Warren, Manitoba, were trapped inside the vehicle. Once extricated, they were transported to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. The 36-year-old male driver of the semi was uninjured. The driver of the pickup... And this is the the part that interests me, uh, Brett, has been charged with careless driving or in legalese drive carelessly. Uh, This from uh, Sergeant Mark Hume of the RCMP. In the past few weeks, we have been attending far too many serious collisions and many of those are occurring at intersections. Intersections are inherently more dangerous than straightaways. You have traffic going in all different directions, doing different speeds and having different rights of way. Drivers absolutely need to be alert when on the road and especially at intersections. We would have had two more deaths. We could have had two more deaths last night. When approaching an intersection, slow down, drive defensively, ensure your path is clear before you proceed and leave lots of room between your vehicle and the vehicle in front of you to allow for sudden stops. You and I have had this discussion before. The fact that there are so many intersections and controlled intersections and non-controlled intersections on Manitoba highways, including the the major ones, is like, let's just acknowledge that's unacceptable, right? We're kind of in the dark ages on that, but we don't do ourselves any favors as drivers, right? Slow to 80 kilometers an hour. If you slow to 80 kilometers an hour at one of those intersections, you're getting the stinky eye from a majority of your fellow drivers. Yeah, I... Always try to adhere to that. There and there, look, I'm sure there have been times where I've where I've kind of blown through one just 
continued at 100 because I wasn't aware or I didn't see the sign or was, I don't know, I wasn't paying attention. I don't, I will never claim to be a perfect driver, but that's a fairly basic safety thing. If it says slow down to 80, yeah, it's kind of an inconvenience because you lose three seconds of your life or whatever it is. Like you don't lose a whole lot of time by slowing down to 80. But when I slow down to 80, there's always two, three, four, five, six, seven vehicles that just go plowing past me doing 100 or 110 or whatever. And um, I don't like it. And I, and I get that I'll be the guy that no one likes, but I don't care. No, it's such a simple thing. And when you think about enforcement, for me, there's lots of things that, that, that bug me that they don't enforce. That's one of them. Like, it'll be shoot, like shooting fish in a barrel. Oh, for sure. You know, and not because I'm out for any cash crabs, but, but this, this, this is one of the fundamentals of highway driving that should be enforced more frequently and more harshly. I don't understand what, like you mentioned, how much time is it actually costing you? I know... We're acknowledging that it's poor engineering. It's dark ages uh, transportation in terms of w- what we deal with on the perimeter highway and on the Trans-Canada. I think there's more stoplights on the Trans-Canada highway slash south perimeter highway uh, in Manitoba than there are all the way from the Manitoba-Saskatchewan border to Vancouver. Really? I-, I think so. I've tried to add them up before, and it's pretty close. It's like, a, it's like, uh, it's like seven or eight in Manitoba. Alone, And I think uh, they just added one uh, somewhere along the line. So uh, let's do some math on that. And we'd like to get your your take on this. Uh, Should police be enforcing more the 80 kilometer an hour slowdown at these archaic uh, intersections? on Manitoba highways. I think it's uh, one way for us to to stay, stay safe, and I don't think we get the message on that in any way, shape, or form. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. You can also send us a text to 204-780-6868. We love your text feedback, and we all know that, hey, sometimes it's not possible to pick up the phone, but if you can pick up the phone and let us know what you think, we would love to hear your voice at 204-780-6868. Should police be enforcing... Speed limits at intersections where you're in a 100 zone or even 110, and it says you got to go down to 80 through the intersection. Should that be enforced? Because it is a basic fundamental, as Greg pointed out, that often is ignored by many drivers who are just trying to save themselves to shave two or three seconds off of their drive. You can also email brett at cjob.com. GMAC at CJOB.com. The phone number, though, 204-780-6868. Your forecast is coming up next. Trying to write these out uh, still, Brett. All the red lights, the, the, the controlled intersections on Highway 1 in Manitoba. Working from east to west, I've got Deacon's Corner, St. Anne's Road, St. Mary's, McGilvery. I think there's at least two in Headingley. One for sure, if not two. There's uh, the one in Eli that we were just discussing. There's one at uh, one in 16. There are two in Brandon. There's one in Verdon, Manitoba. <laughs> I think we're at 13. <laughs> Good for you for recalling all this. <laughs> I think that's right. And in Saskatchewan, I think they're down to just three or four in, in, in Regina. And, uh, the, and once that new bypass is built, they'll have none in Regina. And I don't think there's any until Medicine Hat. 
and there's three or four in Medicine Hat, granted, in Alberta. But now that they've got the bypass around Calgary, I think that's the last one in Alberta. And in British Columbia, granted, there are lots of communities where, you know, they have red lights because the Trans-Canada is just a single lane in each direction. So you've got to go through Golden, Revelstoke, Salmon Arm, Cache Creek, all that through the Fraser Valley. But I still think even then, I think if if you add them all up, there is many stoplights in Manitoba on the Trans-Canada Highway are as there are from the Manitoba-Saskatchewan border to, we'll call it, Abbotsford. Wow. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like, a, like, a, like a living map? Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's done, incredible. I've done those drives a few times. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm marveling at this uh, this display of memory. Well done, Greg. Uh, 204-780-6860, we were asking, should police be doing more enforcement on highways where the speed limit drops down to 80 at intersections and people are not slowing down. Andre, you're up first at 204-780-6868. What do you think about this, Andre? Well, uh, the, the comment I wanted to make was I travel Highway 8 and Highway 9, Gimli to Winnipeg. People pass at intersections all the time. People pass on the right shoulder all the time. It's absolutely brutal. The, the, the police should be out there checking these people. People don't care. And when you come home at night, people are not courteous with their brights and do not signal properly at all. It's very, very, very dangerous. All right, Andre, thanks for the feedback at 204-780-6868. Oh, Greg, here's another one. I should have recognized this given why I'm always heading in that direction to go to Kingswood. Listener texted to say, oh, you missed the perimeter and LaSalle turnoff. That's right. And there's also one at Carberry. Oh. On the Trans-Canada? <laughs> uh, no, no, there's not. No, there's a four-way stop there, but uh, Bob said uh, the one at Oakville. Is that the same one as Eli, or is it a different one, Bob? Uh, email me back, gmac at cjob.com. So I think, yeah, we're at 14 now. Roger is at 204-780-6868. What do you think, Roger? Well, from what you're saying, how many millions, and I mean millions, would it cost to put overpasses, though, on those things? I mean, it would cost a lot of freaking money. It, with, without question, you're, you're talking about a minimum of two to $250 million per interchange. It's, it, it's a ton of cash. But, you know, when, when you look at the, the rest of, of the prairie provinces, like I said, you got easily more in Manitoba than you've got in Alberta and Saskatchewan combined. And I think if you throw BC in there, even with two lane highways, it's going to be really close all the way to the Fraser Valley. That's, that's unacceptable. That's, that's archaic, man. Uh, one, I was going to tell you guys one incident. Uh, we just came uh, over on Sunday back from the Morton Corner Apple Festival, so Highway 3. I don't know what this guy was doing. He was driving uh, an SUV. He had his four-way flashes going, and I swear, he was only doing 70 and 80 kilometers an hour. Did he have uh, maybe his... Did he have, like, uh, was his car really noisy? Because I remember, this reminds no, me it of his... It was a brand-new car. It was an SUV. It was a Volkswagen... Tereg or Tereg, something like that. Okay. So it wasn't old. Well, the and, reason, well yeah. maybe there was something wrong with the vehicle because I remember I had to drive back to Winnipeg or from Winnipeg Beach or Sandy Hook, pardon me, back to Winnipeg in my buddy's car. I think is something happened with his catalytic converter and the car sounded like it was actually going to explode. It was so loud. So we had to drive slow on the way back because he was scared to push it. Oh, okay. Well, it, it could have been that. I just... Yeah, it could have been. He could have had a problem. I just I was kind of surprised because it was it wasn't no vehicle. It was a fairly new vehicle. 
Yeah. So unless maybe something did happen. But yeah, like I mean, when you guys go down the, uh, the but speaking of speed though, when you guys go, let's say down a highway and it says a hundred. You guys go exactly at 100, or do you guys sort of go like 110? No, I've admitted on the air. I'm one of those 109 guys. Uh, oh, okay. I've, I've admitted okay. that on air, and I have no problem admitting it, and I still get passed more than I do passing. I, I promise you that, Roger. Hey, let's oh, try yeah. <laughs> Let's try and keep it to this uh, idea of the 80 zone because we're getting uh, lots of people uh, on text message saying this, okay. and I never, ever imagined that in Manitoba people would be asking for more photo, photo radar, but at least three text messages saying that that would be ideal locations for photo radar. Yeah, there was one that, uh, where did it say? You should put put up cameras at every one of those intersections and tell all those cash grab whiners to shut up. Kevin is at 204-780-6868. Hey, Kevin, what do you think? Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Um, you know, some there's stupid people behind big trucks and there's stupid people behind vehicles that shouldn't be doing this. You have an intersection. It's 80 kilometers an hour before you approach the, on the highway here in Manitoba. Instead of an overpass, stick up bigger, brighter lights to start putting on the lights flashing when that vehicle, when, when the lights are going to start changing. Number two, idiots, you're coming to an intersection. If you're not sure, stop. Look all around you. Don't proceed through it. You see a vehicle coming. Give it that extra couple of minutes so it can go by or a couple of seconds for it to go by. Number two, yeah, stick your CMP there. Get the guns on them. Slow them down. Give them tickets. Do what you got to do and start saving lives. It doesn't take much. Just use your brain and think before you even get going into that intersection. Look all around you. Not just both ways, but everywhere. Thanks, Kevin. And for this overpass thing, quit wasting our money, government. All right, Kevin, thanks for the call at 204-780-6868. I want to make sure as well that we're not I don't, we're not trying to blame anybody. We're not saying the RCMP or Woodmick Police aren't doing their, their job. We're just wondering if maybe this is something or an area where there should be more enforcement. And Eve raises an interesting point, too. He says the problem is police can issue so many tickets that the courts would be backed up for decades. So, uh, yeah. Keep those texts uh, yeah, coming yeah. at 204-780-6868. We do need to pause for Global News on 680 CJOB. Uh, it's worse than I thought. Uh-oh. There's like five to six stoplights just on Portage Avenue through Headingley. Like, it just keeps growing, <laughs> this issue. And, you know, I was going through, went to uh, yesterday, as you know, I went to Southwood uh, Golf Course yesterday. Yep. And I'm driving on uh, Pembina Highway at 50 kilometers per hour. And I'm thinking to myself, where's this bypass? <laughs> I know the NDP had a lot of crappy ideas about things, but infrastructure spending, in my opinion, wasn't one of them. Yeah. You know, I thought they had a good plan there. And you build this $212 million freeway between Inkster or Route 90, uh, basically the, the Centerport Canada Way, to the Perimeter Highway. Well, that freeway still has lights on it. And it's connecting to the Perimeter Highway. And if you're going to the United States, then guess what you get to do for your troubles? A nice little five-minute leisurely drive through downtown St. Norbert at 50 kilometers an hour. I thought we were supposed to be a trucking hotbed. I thought this was supposed to be like the one of the hearts of our economy was, was transportation. We pay that a lot of lip service. I, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. I, that, man. So I think we're up to like 17. 
traffic-controlled intersections on the Trans-Canada Highway if you use the south perimeter to get around the city. What's the start point for that? That would be Deacon's Corner, I believe, is the first one okay. from the Ontario border to the Saskatchewan border, uh, working east or yeah, east to west. I, I listed them off, and apparently I missed like four. Oh, well, and I, and I just, I started scrolling uh, as I ran from the news booth back in here to look at the text messages, and holy smokes, we got a lot of What's text on this. So too? let's go to Bennett, who has been patiently waiting for 13 minutes. Bennett, thank you for your patience at 204-780-6868. Should we be slowing down at intersections where the speed limit drops to 80? Should that be enforced? What do you think? Well, I would... I want to start by saying I'm calling from Bismarck, North Dakota. And I'm a retired North Dakota Department of Transportation person who worked there for 44 years from 1970 to 2014. And I like to listen to CJOB because I get to know what's going on in in Canada and Manitoba. Um, I like, um, you know, the concept is good to slow down because safety at intersections is really important. Uh, you had mentioned, what got my attention today is you had made this comment in your advertising, advertising about uh, interchanges in North Dakota and none in Manitoba. And have you talked to any official North Dakota DOT person today about that? No, but we sure like to do that. Okay. Um, I've kind of a historian of the DOT, too. I'm involved in history projects and what have you. And the North Dakota, the interstate system in the United States is a federal aid system. Uh, It was first conceived in 1944 in the Federal Aid Act. And in 1956, President Eisenhower uh, really brought it to fruition with the establishment of the Federal Highway Trust Fund, he came up with uh, the funding source for it. And the interstate system is a controlled access system. From day one, it always was that, to where there would, the only access onto the interstate would be through interchanges. And then where we didn't have interchanges, we would have crossovers. Uh, so that's why the interstate system has interchanges and no at-grade intersection. It's it's law. It's mandated. It's not a part of the inter- interstate system unless uh, that's the way the roadway is constructed. Fair to say? That is correct. It was mandated by the federal government at the beginning of the interstate system. So are they inherently that much more safe, Bennett? You know, we'd love to keep you on for, for an hour here, and maybe if you could hang on to the line, we'd like to get your phone number here uh, so that we could use you as a resource down the line here. But uh, the bottom line here, interchanges have to be far superior in terms of safety to uh, accurate intersections. That is correct. Uh, I was writing environmental documents from the mid-'70s to the early 90s and uh, for all kinds of projects. And one of the things we found then, and it's still true today, that our accident rate on the controlled access freeways are a whole bunch or uh, less than on non-controlled facilities like, uh, say, US-2 across the northern part of North Dakota.
All right, Bennett, thank you so much. I'm going to put you on hold, Jeff Forte. I'll talk to you off the air and get your contact information. Let's turn to RJ, who has also been waiting patiently for 11 minutes now. RJ, thank you for that patience. What do you think? Uh, just let you know, I just came to Brandon, uh, stopped at the two lights in Brandon on number one. Uh, but along the way, I went through two 80 zones that were getting lasered today. Oh, Interesting. That's good to hear. It is good to hear because yeah. I, you know, I spent a lot of time growing up in Brandon, coming back to Winnipeg, back and forth, and going up to Minnedosa. And I got to tell you, I don't know if I've ever seen them in those intersections anywhere along the Trans Canada Highway. That's really good to know, RJ. I, I do those quite quite frequently, and uh, don't see them a lot, but I definitely do see them out there. That's good to um, know. And slowing down those those places is a no brainer. But like your previous caller said, I mean, we've known since the fifties, and that absolutely had to be. Uh, had to be done to have interchanges, to have uh, grade-level changes. Uh, not to have it is unacceptable. It's ridiculous. Uh, we cheap out at the expense of people's lives every day. You know, if, if we're talking, uh, let's, let's, let's call it 15, because we know it's more than that, but that's a round number. And if we're talking a couple hundred mil- million bucks per interchange, it's $3 billion along the Trans-Canada Highway in the south perimeter. That doesn't include building an interchange and a bypass at St. Norbert, nor does it include uh, necessarily building an interchange. So you could back that off a little bit and eliminate some of those through Headingley. Uh, but we're probably talking about $3 billion. The, the bypass project around Regina on its own is $2.1 billion. Would you be in favor in spending that kind of money, and, and how would we pay for it? It's not going to cost any less next year. I like the way it's you just think. It's going to get more expensive and more people are going to die. Thanks, you RJ. You have to accept the fact it's going to get expensive. Okay, RJ, thank you for the feedback at 204-780-6868. Uh, we just got to oh, read this text and then we'll go to you, John. 204-780-6868, the text reads, I go to Minneapolis five times every two weeks, and once I leave St. Norbert, I have only two more lights before the border and none whatsoever all the way to Burnsville, just south of Minneapolis. What a difference. So much nicer and safer. John is up next. What do you think, John? Hi. A really interesting discussions. I love listening to your show for that reason. Um, I'm a retired guy, not like the one in North Dakota, though. Uh, but what I have noticed, and I have a cottage just north of Gimli, and I chuckled a little bit at the gentleman who said, driving through St. Norbert at 50, my God. And I thought, has he ever calculated how much time he would save if he did 60 or 70? Because I go all the way about 100 kilometers north of Winnipeg to my cottage, and I calculate, I'm, I'm a crazy accountant. <laughs> so by doing 100 or 110, if I do 110, I save four minutes. So Four minutes. everybody's passing in and out, all these people, and some real close calls, if you've ever done that, oh, yeah. say four minutes. Yeah. Because it's only 85 kilometers. So figure it out. Do 120 for 85 kilometers or do 100. You're not saving a lot of time. Yeah, no. Why don't people take it easy, and then they can have two beers when they get there and be alive? <laughs> Instead of rushing out, because i got to get up to the cottage. Well, what for? To relax. Well, relax on the drive. John, much appreciate that. Thanks, Thank you. Bye, guys. Great perspective from John. We appreciate that insight. Cam is up next at 204-780-6868. Hey, Cam, what do you think? Uh, well, Highway 1 is my office. I drive back and forth every single day on this highway, and it doesn't matter if you go the speed limit, uh, you're going to have people flying by you at 150, 160. I'm ex-photo enforcement, so I kind of have a, a, a grasp on how fast people are generally going. But I see police all around Portage Avenue on a daily basis uh, 
radaring people trying to, you know, find the speeders. And then I, I actually got pulled over a couple of weeks or last month, and uh, I deserved it. But uh, at the same time, the way he explained it to me was, we're trying to cut down the amount of deaths that are on the highway. And obviously, no one is getting the message. No matter how many tickets they give out, no one's getting the message. Because right now, I'm doing 110. I'm on Bluetooth, but I'm doing 110, and people are just flying by me right now at 120, 130. All right, Cam. Hey, thanks for the feedback, as always. No Cam, Cam, one of our Be most safe, loyal Cam. listeners at uh, 680 CJOB. And lots of texts here. Interesting suggestion from Doug, who says, no lights is part of the reason the U.S. is $20 trillion in debt. Mm. I'd have to do some research on that. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it. I think the point he's making is, look, it costs a lot of money. It does so. cost a lot of money, and we have to decide which ball game we want to play in and if we want to be genuinely this transportation hub if you if we want to be safe uh then this is something that needs to be done and if it's not a big deal well let's just declare it and uh, count ourselves out 204-780-6868 keep those texts coming we're going to have a look at your forecast up next Brett, have, have you decided or, or or figured out i guess is the question uh with the help of uh research what we're supposed to be eating, how much of what, how much saturated fat, polyunsaturated fat and carbos and uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, do you have any idea what we're supposed to be eating anymore to stay healthy? Um, I like, I would like it to be pizza three times a week. Yeah, I think we're clear on what it, what it isn't, but are we clear on what it is? No, I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. I've been struggling to lose weight for the last year or so. So this next uh, guest is going to help us out a little bit, try to wade through some some of the muck, so to speak. Her name is Rosie Schwartz. She is a nutritionist in Toronto. And the reason why Rosie has joined us now live on 680 CJOB is a large Canadian study has found that contrary to popular belief, mm-hmm. a diet that contains a moderate amount of fat is linked to a reduced risk of premature death compared to the much-touted low-fat diet. Rosie, how does that work? Well, I have (laughs) to say, after reading through this research, I'm now convinced that press releases for studies are being written for clickbait. I mean, we... In in the study, um, they looked at um, high carbohydrate diets, and they didn't differentiate between eating, let's say, um, lentils and fruits and vegetables versus eating white bread. And so, if if you're going to do a study where you don't compare this, then um, you're you're not really helping helping the public. You're not helping people eat healthier. And and other research has shown yes, if you're going to eat sugar and and white bread, you're going to have a higher risk of disease. Yeah, I just I don't. We seem to be betting flogging a dead horse. I guess here there are a lot of things that that we know. Research is great, uh, but this sounds like you know 135,000 people, 18 countries. Like this is as big a study as you're going to find. Well, why not? Why not study it all and study it completely? Well, that's that's the question. And and if it's 18 countries, um, if you're comparing. A country like um, Japan, for example, or um, or India, to um, to United States and Canada, 
and you're not looking at the different kinds of foods and you're just looking at fat versus carbohydrate, then it's it's not giving us new information. The research shows that um, that if we eat healthy fats, then um, and we eat we eat healthy carbohydrates, and we have a healthy dietary pattern, then that's going to lower the risk of disease. But this is saying we need to revisit the dietary fat guidelines. Well, we've known this for a while that 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 when they started telling people in the 90s that fat was bad, people started eating, you know, sugar-free um, or not sugar-free, sugar-loaded um, cookies and candies. Mm-hmm. And then they found out that they were gaining weight and they weren't any healthier. I mean, this is going back to what what we've known for, for years. But when you when you... M- put together headlines like that, you really confuse people. Well, isn't the bottom line here, Brett, we're just looking for that magic pill, that magic answer, and we kind of know what it is. You might not need a detailed prescription to really understand what's better for us to eat, right? I mean, it's just basically less of all the things that are manufactured and more of the things that, that come from the ground. Exactly, more whole foods. Now, what's interesting is that they, in this, in this paper, they talk about high carbohydrates not being healthy, but then they have a separate paper talking about the health benefits of pulses like lentils and chickpeas and fruits and vegetables. So if they were going to look at all that, why not put it all together? and not confuse people. So, um, I mean, they've, they've got things that they've looked at. For example, they found that replacing unhealthy carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates, with healthy fats, unsaturated fat, lowered the risk of dying of heart disease. Well, but that's not what comes out in the headlines. They just say dietary fat, and they lump them all together, and they also, when they're, what they're doing is they're saying that when you eat too much saturated fat, it's not healthy. Well, we've known that, but, but again, the headlines don't tell you that. They make you think that, yes, butter is back. Butter in moderation is fine, but eating canola oil and eating extra virgin olive oil is going to give you more benefits. What, so is that an example then of a, of a healthy fat? Because that's something that I could probably learn to know the difference is uh, yes. between a, a, what's a healthy fat versus a, uh, an unhealthy fat. So um, unprocessed, um, like say, are vegetable oils, for example, um, that are not, you know, not um, hydrogenated are healthier for you. So, so liquid, a liquid canola oil, extra virgin olive oil versus a hard fat, an animal fat. So we can eat some animal fats. So we still need to trim the fat off. You know, if you're eating meat, eat smaller portions, have well-trimmed um, beef, for example. But it's the research still says that eating eating more plant-based foods, eating more um, whole fruits and vegetables, and um, and Nuts and seeds, for example, are healthier than um, than eating a lot of animal products. 
Rosie Schwartz, thank you for this, and we appreciate you uh, helping us press pause on the discussion, our, our discussion uh, with regard to uh, highway travel in Manitoba uh, loaded up the phone line, so we appreciate you uh, having patience with us. Okay, my pleasure. Okay, right. take care. Rosie Schwartz joining us live from Toronto on 680 CJOB. She is a nutritionist talking about this study. You can actually follow Rosie uh, on Twitter if you'd like, at Rosie Schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z. And she has a website, rosieschwartz.com. And again, the study, just to recap, this is a large Canadian study that is challenging the current wisdom about how much fat, carbohydrates, and servings of fruit and vegetables make for a healthy diet to prevent premature death. And they're saying that uh, this study at least says that a diet that contains a moderate amount of fat is linked to a reduced risk of premature death compared to the much-touted low-fat diet. So that's uh, the sort of snapshot. But as Rosie was saying, sometimes the headlines can be deceiving. Yeah, and I'm as as confused as ever, So, which isn't hard. (laughs) But you summed it up nicely. Less manufactured food, more food that comes from the ground. I think that works. A safe bet. 257 on 680 CJOB. Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling on 680 CJOB. Let me put my couch potatoes hat on. Well, there's a lot of factors here, uh, you know, aside from the fact that... What did I do wrong there? Did I put the clips in the wrong order? No, I... Live radio. At its finest, buddy. I... We talked earlier to Chris Jenselowitz, who is with Global News. He's their senior national online entertainment reporter for Global News. And I was hoping to play a clip from Wonder Woman there, but I clearly didn't put it in here. So that was the beginning of the conversation that I recorded earlier. But where I was going to say there with Wonder Woman, the reigning champion of the summer box office season, $406 million in North America. Not the biggest movie of the year, though. Typically the biggest movie of the year lands in summer. But this year's Beauty and the Beast, which came out in March, and it made $504 million. That leads into the headline, Summer Box Office Suffers Historic Decline in the U.S. By the time Labor Day weekend wraps, Summer Box Office is going to be down nearly 16% over the last year. That's the steepest decline in what they're referring to as modern times. And it will be the first time in over a decade that the summer did not clear $4 billion, coming in at roughly $3.78 billion. Oh. So we turn to Chris Jenselowitz, Senior National Online Entertainment Reporter for Global News. While Greg Mackling was in here at 1245 with Jeff Courier, I was out speaking with Chris, when I, and I asked him, what's going on here? Why is the box office so bad? Well, there's a lot of factors here, uh, you know, aside from the fact that people generally overall the habit has become not to go to movies because of its price and it's inconvenient and all these other reasons uh this summer's movies have been not great (laughs) that's been a huge driving factor i mean there have been you know maybe a handful of successes but on the whole uh most movies this summer have not uh, met the expectations that's for sure yeah, I mean, uh, Wonder Woman was uh, is the clear winner of the, the the season. I really did enjoy it. But do yeah. you think that maybe people are just are already getting tired of of hearing the words cinematic universe? <laughs> they certainly are. I mean, I think that we hit the comic book uh, adaptation limit uh, years ago, personally. But um, you know, people just seem to love this stuff, and you know, it's easier to sell a movie that's based on an established character than it is to sell something brand new. That you have to make up all the marketing, you have to you know sell it a certain way, get a certain audience. So someone like Wonder Woman, everyone knows who Wonder Woman is, right? She has like a past, and you can adapt that, you can work with that. Um, 
I personally believe that superhero movies need to stop just for a little while. Take a little break, come back maybe a decade from now. That's my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Is that your desire as well? Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, I just... I think it's just you can only tell a story so many times and something Wonder Woman is great because it was new. Uh, you know, she's fascinating and, you know, you don't really get a lot of female superheroes, this whole argument. And so that's what made it new and interesting and fun. And I think that's why it did so well. But then you look at movies like The Mummy, which was mm-hmm. I mean, it, it it even it blatantly said they instead of the universal logo at the beginning, it was the the dark universe that yeah. surrounded. And I just they I thought that that movie spent more time trying to set up its future than just be a good movie yeah you know and it's let's not forget that it's a tom cruise vehicle right like it's a it is a tom cruise movie and as far as i you know information i've heard has said that you know he was very involved in the script very involved in the plot very involved in everything that happened so you know when you have too many cooks in the kitchen this stuff ends up happening and you get this train wreck of a movie you know you blow like hundreds of millions of dollars on and you end up making tens of millions which is a huge loss but then when you look at the and this is leads into my next question i'm wondering mm-hmm. is domestic box office as important as it used to be because you look at a movie like the mummy which i think made like 80 million dollars here but its worldwide total is uh 400 million so yeah, that's right like uh, i think china's a huge factor now uh in movies in audience i mean it matters definitely if china wants to see your movie or not But uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 5 is another example. The Mummy is another example where these movies would have flopped entirely if it was strictly a North American audience, a U.S. audience. Um, So with the help of the international audience, it helps extremely. It actually saves the movie and the studio. So it's definitely very important. So what do you think they need to do then to sort of right the ship? I think, well, this is something I, I wax poetic on all the time and I get like eye rolls and whatever. But I just I feel like Hollywood is out of original ideas. So if you take into consideration a movie like Get Out, which came out in February, uh, that movie is stellar because uh, it is original. It is funny. It is what it says it is. It's got a lot of surprises. Um, these are things that I'm not seeing very frequently in movies anymore. And it's a sad state of affairs. It's easier to churn out a franchise piece, which is the exact same as its predecessor, with maybe a few little tweaks. Much, much easier for a studio to produce that. But ultimately, your audience gets jaded and doesn't care anymore when all they're doing is shelling out, you know, 60 bucks a head to go see this movie. And it's this massive disappointment. Wouldn't you rather see something completely original and great and not affiliated with the franchise? I would. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> I would, too. Yeah. And I, I just that when you look at all the, the sequels and franchises, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I like the comic book movies. I like the superhero films. But even I have a, a limit. And th- because there used to be these big events, but now there's one every two to three months. And especially with DC getting involved, yes. it, uh, it, it's almost a little overwhelming. Before I let you go here, mm-hmm. I got to ask you, mm. did you watch Game of Thrones? Yes, I did. <laughs> What'd you think? Sure did. Honestly, <clears throat> I found the first 45 minutes to be, and I wrote this uh, in my piece yesterday, I believe. Um, <clears throat> I found the first 45 minutes to be very slow, almost like a slog. You know, you have, I don't really want to spoil anything, but it just felt like a, a lot of back and forth, which we got the episode prior. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, you know, maybe I thought the finale would have a little bit more juice to it. And of course, in the last half hour, sure, it picked up. It got quite juicy, quite good. Um, but the first half I thought was a little, little laggy in okay. my own opinion. I, well, I, I quite, I, I enjoyed it. I watched it actually, I watched it and then I immediately watched it again 
And then I, I'm kind of ashamed to admit it, but I don't really care. I watched it a third time last <laughs> night. <so. laughs> and what did you think each time? Did it get better, or what happened? I, I loved it every single time. I, uh, I, it, it's, I was, I was pleased because I was really unhappy with the sixth episode. It was, it was yes. exciting, but I thought it was really dumb. Yes. And uh, I, I sort of enjoyed the slow pace of the, the final episode because it got back to being about all of these characters that we've come to love over the years, with the excitement at the end. So You're I was right. pleased. You're Overall right. assessment on the season going from 10 episodes down to 7. What do you think? Yeah, again, they crammed it all in, right? They crammed so much into those episodes that it just felt like, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, you know, and so much um, has been made of the time the time differences and the, you know, you're in one place and now you're on another entirely different side of the world in like five seconds. So I don't know, you know, there's been a lot of criticism about that. But it's apparent that it was just all crammed in there and they're trying to, you know, like you said, the at the beginning of the last episode when they're talking, it's all tying up loose ends. You know, what's happening with these two? What's happening with these two? And it's just, it's endless, this, you know, tying up of loose ends. And it just kind of is not as so fun to watch. Chris Jenselowitz, senior national online entertainment reporter for Global News. I just, I had to talk to him about Game of Thrones. It wrapped up on Sunday. We had a discussion a couple weeks back about it. But the main reason we had to chat today talking about the summer box office suffering a historic decline in the United States as uh, people are not going to the movies as much as they used to. You got a text message here uh, directed straight to you, Brad. I typically would take in eight to ten movies a summer since Hollywood brats decided to get politically, vocally, in an asinine way. I have not gone to see any this year. Oh, interesting. Out of protest. Well, thanks for the feedback. Appreciate it. Speak with your wallet. 315 on 680 CJOB. Traffic, weather, up next. You're giving away tickets uh, last week to Bruce Springfield? To Rick Springfield. That's right. And you know what? We have have an update on that that we want to tell you about in a moment here. Just got to very quickly tell you. Stalled vehicle in the center lane on westbound Notre Dame at Weston. We have tickets to give away right now to something called WSO Arrival from Sweden, the music of ABBA. This is happening September 22nd to the 24th at the Centennial Concert Hall. It's a spectacular tribute band, world-renowned tribute band, coupled with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. This is going to be an amazing show for ABBA fans, for symphony fans, for fans of music in general. You know, I don't know much about ABBA, but I know just listening to this, I just want to tap my toes right now. Yeah, I hope they'll be uh, serving uh, alcohol at those concerts because that's going to be a party and a half. Yeah. Like, <laughs> seriously, anything with ABBA and then you throw in the symphony, I'm down for that. We got to go to this. Yeah, it's going to be a good show. <laughs> ABBA has sold a lot of records. They are among the most successful musical acts of all time. The question today for you to call 204 780 6868. Is how many records have they sold? 204-780-6868. That's right. So we need you to answer that. And then realize I also realize this is a tough one to verify, but there is a there is a common ballpark figure that okay. that went out there when I was looking at this. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. I'm gonna crack the lines open right now. What how many records has ABBA sold? In you the know meantime, they turned down, they once turned down. This is uh, urban legend, but I believe it to be true. They once turned down a billion dollars to tour together again. A b- really? One, one billion dollars. <laughs> oh, God. And they said, no. Well, 
we're happy just doing what we're doing. Wow. Thanks, but no thanks. That, that kind of money being thrown at somebody. <sighs> yeah. Just be a little bit of cash for your retirement, Brett. Oh, my God. Start writing some disco tunes, man. There's still time. <laughs> we got to tell you that, as Greg alluded to, Rick Springfield. We were giving away tickets last week for Rick Springfield set to play tomorrow night in Winnipeg. Unfortunately, he's had to cancel the Winnipeg show. Rick Springfield was forced to cancel his shows in Regina and Winnipeg this week due to an unexpected minor surgery on his arm. Although the surgery was successful in repairing a torn tendon, the recovery process has taken longer than both Rick and his surgeon expected. He will resume his touring schedule on Friday, September 1st in Vancouver. So this is a show that was supposed to happen tomorrow at the Burton Cummings Theatre. We gave tickets away all week here on Mackling and McGarry with guest host Tristan Field-Jones and guest host Hal Anderson. Gee whiz. So, unfortunately, those prizes are... Did I say Bruce Springfield? I think did. I did. Yeah, and you I, know what? I was thinking Bruce Springsteen, just... That's a common mistake. I used to get the two names mixed up all the time when I was a kid. Yeah, their music is nothing alike. I like Rick Springfield because he does at least one Sammy Hagar cover... And uh, he has some of that uh, same sort of tone. And I think Jesse's Girl is one of the best rock and roll songs ever done. So that's too bad they canceled that show for tomorrow night. Yeah, it is too bad. But uh, So there you go. That's the update. Sorry about that. In the meantime, Jeff Forte, I'll look for a winner for today's ABBA contest. And then we'll check your forecast in sports starting in two minutes. Remember when Hurricane uh, Katrina hit New Orleans, Brett? Yes. Were, were you working here at CJOB at that time? or? Uh, I, think I, I think I may have been here already. I, I mean, it was devastating, and and the warnings, and the fact that it hit Louisiana or New Orleans the way it did so exactly uh, was overwhelming, and the devastation. And now we're seeing this with Houston. Tomorrow is the twelfth anniversary of that occasion of Hurricane Katrina. Oh wow. 200, as many as 250,000 people from New Orleans landed in Houston after the disaster, and between 25 and 40,000 people that uh, out of that group that left New Orleans for Houston actually stayed there. So some of those people are actually getting uh, hit 12 years apart by uh, separate hurricanes. That is turning their life upside down. Just uh, absolutely inconceivable in my mind. We'll shift gears. Christian O'Mell, my co-host, my new co-host on uh, Sports Sunday, joins us now here in the studio at 680 CJOB. Hello. And uh, the U.S. Open. We were talking about the U.S. Open, I think, uh, very briefly on Sunday. And uh, our discourse uh, uh, included a prediction on my part. Very bold. That if... uh, Dennis uh, Shapovalov Shapovalov, uh, managed to get past the the second round, that he would go to the semifinal. And I said... You're crazy, Greg. Yeah, and so how are you feeling about that now? Uh, he's won two a days match. Later. I, well, he's playing the number eight seed in the tournament tomorrow. Well, maybe tomorrow. Everything's been rained out today, so it might not actually happen until Thursday at this point. We don't right. know. Uh, he's playing Joe Wilford Songa tomorrow. If he wins that, yeah, there's a path. Far. There's a path. Mark Arndt joins us now. He's executive director of uh, Tennis Manitoba. And we want to talk to Mark about the overall effect of Shapovalov and his uh, his impressive run at the Rogers Cup. Because every time a Canadian does well on the men's or the women's side, there seems to be a spike in interest in tennis. And now, uh, Mark, have you experienced that in the last few weeks uh, at Tennis Manitoba? You know, yeah, we we have. Uh... Definitely. I mean, having him on on TV and uh, 
his skater boy looks and all that and then he appeals to the young uh to the young generation and uh most definitely, you know, I, I've noticed more calls coming in, more kids playing, and it's not only him, but I, I mean, it's, it's what Raonich and Bouchard started, you know, several years back, and uh, it makes my job easier to promote the sport, let's put it that way. Before you, either of you guys ask a question, Christian, I'm going to ask you, who is Denis Shapovalov? Did I even say his name right? Yeah, no. pretty much. Shapa... Shapovalov. Shapovalov, yes. Okay, so he, right. Yeah, he's an 18-year-old from Ontario. He... Uh, He's made pretty good rounds on the junior circuit. I think he won the junior Wimbledon title a couple of years ago. Uh, burst onto the scene at the Rogers Cup tennis tournament in Montreal last month, or maybe it was earlier this month. It, recently, way. recently made all the way to the semifinal, beat Rafael Nadal under the lights in Montreal, and that's when everyone in Canada that watches tennis or watches sports casually thought, "Oh, this guy, this guy's good," and he's got long blonde hair. He wears the baseball cap backwards. He's really charismatic. And uh, that's who he is. Mark, he's super athletic as well, right? Uh, he doesn't live and die by his serve. No, you know, and that's, that's the beauty about him is I, I see him, his body type, like he, he's so resilient and he's so whippy and like a, like a gumby, like a band, like a rubber band. And he, you know, his power, he's got easy power on his serve. Um, he's got his left, because he's a lefty as well, which is a massive, massive advantage in, uh, in tennis. So uh, he's there. He's here for the long haul. I mean, mentally, he's tough. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's going to be fun to watch the next 15 years because right behind him there's a, a guy named Felix uh, Aliassim who's, who's all, he's a year younger and he's just as good, if not better than him. So watch for him to pop on the scene in the next uh, 12 months as well. Is it possible that Shapovalov could end up getting to heights that no Canadian player has ever seen before, which is winning a major? Yeah, and, and that's just it. We uh, we recently had the Winnipeg National Bank Challenger here in Winnipeg, which Shapovalov was supposed to play here, but he he didn't come because of uh, he just he was just too tired from playing Wimbledon and all these tournaments. But he was so close from coming. But um, but basically, yeah, to answer your question, uh, absolutely. Like he's uh, he's going to be better, I think, than Raonic. I think he will win a major, and I mean that's a bold prediction. I don't know if it's going to be as bold as yours and and this U.S. Open, but um, he's going to have the chances. And just the overall package, he's got it, and it's just so nice to see uh, uh, Canada being represented on a worldwide stage like that. Mark, I have to ask you, for the, for the novice uh, listening right now, why is being left-handed such a huge advantage in, in tennis? Yeah, because uh, there's fewer lefties on tour, so fewer guys to practice with, so you can't get used to that spin and, and that I mean, when you're kicking the ball out wide, especially when it's a it's advantage for somebody when you're playing on the ad side of the court and you're serving out wide to to a right-hander's backhand, um, that takes you off the court and pretty much leaves the the open court uh, to to put the ball back into. So that's that's the massive difference um, when you're in that tight situations on the big points. You can get get out of big points or win the big points because because of that you can get the guy the right-hander right off the court and have an open court to put it away. Mark, we just have about 60 seconds here. Uh, I know you're up at Grand Beach today. Why don't you tell us uh, what you're up to out in the, that neck of the woods? Yeah, no, out here uh, checking out their brand-new tennis courts. They uh, resurfaced them, beautiful tennis courts here, three of them, and uh, got some kids that I'm going to be uh, training with, actually hitting out right away right after we talk, get out on the courts and hit with them, and potential Canada Games uh, prospects uh, four years from now uh, working on these, these 11, 12-year-olds, uh, and, uh, and that's what we're going to be doing. So I want to check out the courts, play on them a little bit, see what they're like, and, uh, and get these kids going. And, again, Grand Beach, Victoria Beach, all these, uh, all these places, it's amazing how much tennis is going on here. Mark, we appreciate it. And uh, real quick, there, there are lots of winter options, eh, for kids that want to stay active in tennis throughout the winter months? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have our two private clubs uh, that have uh, that have tennis lessons and tournaments and fun, you know, just the introduction to tennis. So we've got that at those two clubs, Winter Club and uh, Taylor Tennis, and then Community Center Tennis as well. We have uh, programs going in community centers. And uh, if you go to our website, uh, tennismanitoba.com, you can check out where we have programming going throughout. Very affordable, and that's one thing i got to stress. It's not, uh, it's not a white-collar expensive sport. It's very, very affordable for the kids. And no concussions either, so... Uh, Definitely suggest trying it out. It's a lifelong sport, so do it. Get out on the court there. Help those kids uh, perfect their backhands and their topspin. And uh, we'll, we'll catch up with you soon, Mark. Appreciate the time. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. You betcha. Mark Arndt, he is Executive Director of Tennis Manitoba. Uh, we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll we'll keep our listeners in the loop on the U.S. Oh, yeah. Open and, and with the rain of, uh, of course, uh, Shapovalov may not pay, play until Thursday against Joe Wilfred Songa. He's the number eight ranked uh, a number eight ranked player in the world right now. Well, well in, at the, in US the U.S. Open, Open because yes. we're missing six of what the top eleven. Five players. of the top eleven aren't there yet. Yeah, so wow. we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on things, including Milos. That is why there could be a potential path here for uh, Young Shapovalov to uh, make it to the semifinal Man. or further. Maybe he'll win the whole Who thing. Who knows? I'm not predicting that though. Thanks, Christian. <laughs> Anytime, guys. Six eighty CJOB's Christian O'Mel, co-host of Sports Sunday which airs on 680-CJOB on, believe it or not, Sunday. 346 on 680-CJOB. We'll check traffic, weather. We'll hear from Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham about the news. And I want to tell you about an event that I went to last night, which was really cool. So I had my fun during normal working hours yesterday. Yep. You had your fun in the evening and into the wee hours, shall we say. I did. And I'm going to tell you about that in a moment. Before we do that, Julie Buckingham is going to tell us what's coming up on the news. We will speak with Ryan Lashane. He is a former Sisler student and now a top chef. He is a restaurateur in Houston. The name of his restaurant, even a nod to his Winnipeg roots, it is the Riel Restaurant. So we'll find out how things have been going for them. I know they were closed during uh, Hurricane Harvey. They are back at the restaurant today, so we'll find out how, how things are going for them. It's also going to be a big town hall tonight at the uh, St. James uh, Civic Center. This is surrounding the legalization of cannabis, and so we'll tell you more about that from the MP that is is running that. We'll also speak with Dr. Jody Samra. She is a psychologist that's done uh, lots of consulting on, on television shows and, and that type of thing, and we're going to talk to her about second chances and whether we are really overreacting about the Hamilton Tiger Cats uh, attempted hiring of Art Bryles and if people should be given second chances and if you've done things in your past how you can rebound from that good it's, question it is a good question so we'll uh, get her insight on that Julie Buckingham thank you very much the news from 4 until 7 on 680 CJOB and just very quickly I'll tell you yeah you, Greg you were at uh, Southwood Golf Course all yesterday and uh, with the Blue, Winnipeg Blue Bombers, so mm-hmm. tough gig. Yeah, it was very difficult. Uh, I do uh, whatever I need to do, sacrifice <laughs> for the program, for the radio station. I'm always happy to do it. So uh, my fun, as you pointed out, came after work. I was invited to the Grove Pub and Restaurant, which is at Grosvenor and Stafford, which is already, like they said, 
you could have said whatever, had me do anything at the Grove, and I'd be there because it's one of my favorite. <laughs> it is my favorite watering hole. It's right in my neighborhood. Celebrity busboy championships? Sure. Yes. Why not? Um, but I was invited there by our pals over at Torque Brewing Company because they had set up this contest called the Battle of the Wits. It's a battle of the, because they each have a, a Belgian wit beer, as a, I think that's how you pronounce it, or it's a Belgian wheat style beer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, so there, it's at the Grove. It's torque. It's wheat beer. I sold, and they asked me to invited me to be a judge in this contest because it was Torque Brewing Company versus Barnhammer Brewing Company. I've had bo- their wheat beer as well, and it's, it's excellent. So it's just, it was like an event that was tailor made. For me, so just a bunch of uh, beer chugging slugs uh, as, <laughs> as, uh, as 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 judges here, Brett. Well, no, and that's where it got super. That's where it, it was really interesting for me because it was a panel of five judges, and one of them was uh, Ben McPhee Sigurdsson, who uh, is a literary editor and uh, drinks writer in the arts and life section for the Winnipeg Free Press. Okay, I've missed your article anywhere on on beer drinking yeah. and, and the art of such. Okay, so he knows his stuff. Uh, there is a gentleman who works, I believe he, he owns a restaurant called Susal in Osborne Village. It's kind of in the back of the building at the northeast corner of Confusion Corner. There is a guy who works, at, I think he's a chef at the Manitoba Club. And then there was another guy who is like in charge of training all the bartenders at this hospitality complex in Vancouver. <laughs> so you were in prime company, yeah. right? So they're all talking about... Oh, I, I'm detecting some lemon on this and the aroma. And uh, I said, one of them actually went and got different cups for them to pour the beer in, so they could try to smell it. Because that, uh, so I asked him, what, what that, what is that little tulip shaped cup? How does that help the aroma? Oh, it's uh it's entropy versus extropy. And I, I just, what? I thought, I don't know what you guys are saying. I just like to drink beer. It's weak English. <laughs> but it was fascinating to watch these four industry professionals right. have a, a heated discussion. Not a, they weren't going at it, but it was just, it was a lot of fun. And I think I, I'm hoping to get at least three of them to come visit us at some point. I'd love for that to happen. Uh, so anyway, what ended up happening? But how did is, your palate match up? I still I ended up voting the same way they did. There I, you go. They were a bit more harsh with their their criticisms, but uh, I, I I chose the beer that they did. It was unanimous in favor of Torque Brewing Company, the Woody Belgian, but uh, Barnhammer Le Sneak Belgique got the public vote. Um, and then, so a representative from each had their beards shaved off by what Hunter do you mean and beards Gun. Beards shaved? Yeah, this, they had, this this was what was on the line. Yeah, not had, just bragging rights. Yeah, they had to get shave their beard. Oh my! So they did that outside. And uh, should also mention that this was all in support of uh, United Way Coats for Kids. Fantastic! So they raised some money. So it was a lot of fun. Thank you for uh, inviting me out, you guys. It was a a great time, and I just wanted to say thanks to everybody involved in that. Thank you, Greg. Back in the saddle. Great to have. Uh, great to be here, and and. Great Great to uh, have your uh, have your back, as they say. And thanks to Jeff Forte. Oh, I forgot to mention the winner what? of the, uh, oh, yeah. the contest. We'll have to mention that tomorrow because we got to get out of here. Goodbye. Just want to quickly congratulate Valerie Popovich, who won today's tickets for WSO Arrival from Sweden, the music of ABBA, happening next month at the Centennial Concert Hall. The question was, how many records have has ABBA sold? The answer, 375 million singles and albums. That is insane. So congratulations to Valerie for winning those tickets.